to Judges chapter 6 this morning and continue the message, The Lord is my peace. We find here that when the angel of the Lord, which you might have noticed is the Lord because the Lord spoke to Gideon, spoke peace to Gideon and said, Do not fear, thou shalt not die. Upon these words of peace, Gideon then, in verse... 24, he built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom unto this day. It is yet in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. The Lord is my peace, Gideon found in a time of fear, time of his anxiety, in a time of his unrest. So we looked first of all last Sunday at the meaning and usage of the word Shalom in the Bible. And the picture that emerged was one of wholeness, completeness, something that's finished, something made good. It is our well-being. It's that inner sense of peace and rest that we find in God and discover nothing is lacking. There's nothing missing. Everything is entire. Another nuance of the word shalom, of course, is contentment. Contentment is that inner rest we have when we recognize in Jesus Christ There's no need that's missing, nothing that if only we had, it would be better, but in Christ alone, we find peace, rest, and contentment. And then we looked at the fact that He is the source of our peace, Uh, Jesus Christ, where Paul says, He is our peace, he would write, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And that peace is first objective, it's outside of us, it's not based on how we feel. And then our assurance of that peace objectively becomes subjective when we recognize the presence of Jehovah Shalom. And Gideon experienced that because the angel said, the Lord is with thee, the Lord is with thee. So we experience that peace when we experience God with us. He had not forsaken Israel, and the proof of that was he delivered them into the hands of the Midianites for rescuing, for delivering. The Lord never forsakes us, but often our peace is robbed because we don't experience the presence of Jehovah Shalom. Now that brings us to the third and fourth point this morning. And the third one is this, Jehovah is our strength. Jehovah Shalom, that peace we experience in His presence, then becomes our strength. Now we see this in the words of the angel when he says on two occasions, The Lord is with thee, you mighty man of valor. He says that in verse 12. And then in verse 14, he says, And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? So Gideon is said to be a mighty man of valor. Now there are three different words the angel uses, mighty, valor, and might, to express five different things about Gideon. That Gideon is strong, he's powerful, he has strength, he has this valor, and he's a champion. Now, the word is used concerning Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, where the Philistines saw Goliath as a champion. He was a mighty man. Now, surely that's the man you want on your team. I mean, basketball or football. He's over nine feet tall. Nothing gets in his way. 
But the angel uses this word or these words in relation to Gideon. Now, when we look at the page, we see nothing. And Gideon himself objects to such a statement with these words. Look at how Gideon responds to these words in verse 15. And he said, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So Gideon responds with two words that express five different things in response to what the angel says. I'm poor, I'm needy, I'm insignificant, I'm young, and I'm little. All those nuances are contained in poor and least. So it's very likely that Gideon physically is a very little man. Not a big man. We just take the nuances of those words. So what is the angel trying to do here? Is the angel using a 21st century strategy to get Gideon to just believe in himself? If he just has a little more confidence and self-esteem, he would see that really within himself is all the strength and power that he needs to go out and smite the Midianites as if he's one man. You know, that's the problem, isn't it? When people tell us to believe in ourselves, that's the whole reason I'm full of fear. That's the whole reason I'm so anxious. It's because when I look to myself, I see there's nothing there in myself that could do what God calls me to do, especially to go out and fight physically with 135,000 Midianites, right? So what is the angel saying? The angel is directing Gideon not to look to his own strength, but the strength of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you three reasons why I take that from this phrase. Go in this thy might, and the Lord shall save Israel by your hand. Number one, what he says in chapter 7. We just read, God said there's too many people. To go fight, lest Israel vaunt itself, and they say, Mine own hand has saved me. Now that's just a metaphor for power and might and strength. So if the angel is getting Gideon to look at his own strength, why does he tell 22,000 men to go home? Lest Israel say, lest Gideon say, It was the might of my own strength that did this. In fact, the angel told me just how strong I was, and I just went out and we whipped the Midianites. God acted in chapter 7 to exclude all boasting. Then after 22,000, He said, Take the men that are left, 10,000, and tell them to do this, and when they do, I will separate the men. And of course, we read, some of them got on all their fours and drank out of the water, and some of them lifted the water up in their palm and lapped like a dog. And God reduced the army down to 300. So, 32,000 men, 31,700 go home. Now somebody says, well, the reason was, is because the guys that lapped, they were ready. Man, they were ready to go into battle. No. But then they would vaunt themselves, wouldn't they? Well, how, how did you 300 men whip them? I had 300 guys that were ready and prepared for battle. Now, I can't tell you why God chose uh, the men that lapped water like a dog. It may be that they were lazy. They didn't want to get out on all fours and drink the water. Or it could be they were over 50 years old and when they got down, they couldn't get back up. Whatever the reason is, it had nothing to do with being ready or being prepared. 
Because all the glory and the power was God alone's. He excluded all boasting. So nobody's going to say, well, it's because we lap water like a dog that we whipped the Midianites. That's the first reason. The angel is not pointing to the might of Gideon when he says, you are a mighty man. Number two, he looked upon Gideon. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's no indication in just three verses that the angel was looking away from Gideon. We, we show that as a sign of disrespect. You know, when somebody's talking to you, you look them in the eye. So there's only two verses stated. Now, it could have been that the angel was looking away and he turned and looked at Gideon. I don't think that's the case. Some say, uh, commentators, that when he looked, he infused power into Gideon. I can't see that in the text. I'm not going to deny it, but I can't affirm it. What I can affirm is the meaning of the word looked is not just to turn and look at someone physically. It means to regard. It means to care. It means to have concern. Now the angel looked at Gideon when? When Gideon just said, Lord, you don't care. Why has all this befallen us? You don't care. You have no regard for us. You have no concern for me or Israel. Where are all the miracles that we heard that you did when our forefathers came out of Egypt? You don't care. You don't love us. In fact, you've forsaken us. He looked at him. Now, I don't know if Gideon experienced anything from the look, but I know what the word means. And the angel is communicating regard. Beloved, God has communicated to you a regard for you and a care and a concern through the Lord Jesus Christ. How often do you doubt God's concern on the basis of what befalls you? On the basis of what happens to you? On the basis of a peace that the world tries to offer you in good circumstances? So when they're bad, you conclude... The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord really doesn't care. And the Lord really has no regard because if He did, He would not have allowed this to happen. This bad circumstance would not have invaded my life. Now the flip side of that is, you start to conclude that God does love you when everything goes well. That's just as wrong. I'm prospering. Life is good. Everything's functioning as it should. And therefore my peace now is based on what's happening to me. And now I conclude that God really does love me. Beloved, we conclude that God loves us on the basis of what He says to us. Not on the basis of what happens. If we try to conclude and get peace and strength on that basis... Our strength will be fickle, unstable, and our peace will be up and down on the basis of what? What comes into my life and then what leaves my life. And only can I have peace like the wicked who have no rest and no peace because their peace is secure only by external circumstances. That's why God says there is no peace for the wicked. And beloved, there'll be no peace for you and me if we Determine that God's regard, God's care, God's love for us is on the basis 
of what happens to us. That's not the basis. So he looks upon him. Now, the point of this inner sense of well-being called peace that we have through the Lord is that when the Lord is dwelling with us, our assurance of peace is that we are with the Lord. Now, when we are not with the Lord, that doesn't mean He's forsaken us, as the case here is with Gideon. But your experience of peace in God, that He's with you, and the strength of that peace is only when you are with God. So here's the question we need to ask. We don't need to ask, why has this befallen us? That's an okay question to ask, but that's not the primary question. We don't need to be so concerned as, why were things so much better in the past? As Gideon concludes, the question you need to ask is, where are you? Where are you with the Lord? It may be that you have no peace because you're not with the Lord. God is with you in our experience. I want to make that clear. God is with you in your experience of peace when you are with God. Now Israel is not with God. And so the peace of Jehovah Shalom is not theirs at the moment until they return to Jehovah. Paul would say in Galatians 6, 15 and 16, For neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy from the Israel of God, and on the Israel of God. If you walk according to this rule, you have peace. You have this experience of peace. The word rule means a carpenter's tape. It means a measuring device. It's the measuring of a distance in the Olympic Games of that day. Now, if you're going to measure how far the long jumper jumped, you need a, a standard to make a decision and a judgment. And you apply the standard and determine the distance. What is the rule that Paul is pointing to? That as many as walk according to this rule, peace is on them. The God of peace is experienced. Well, in verse 15, he calls it a new creature. But in Galatians 5, 6, he says this, which is a parallel text. For neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, that's repetition of verse 15, chapter 6, but faith which worketh by love. Because a new creature is one who has faith in God that produces love. As many as walk according to that rule, the rule of faith in God, peace, shalom, is on them. Which means they're experiencing some of that peace. Yes, it is objective, it cannot change, but we're concerned this morning with the experience of peace, that inner sense of well-being and contentment that comes when? When you're trusting and walking with the God that is walking with you. Our forefathers wisely penned it this way. The Word of God is our only rule of faith in God and practice. What we know about God. What we treasure about God. The, the Word of God is the rule we walk by. And the rule we decide, judge like a measuring tape by. And what does Paul say happens? 
peace on you. The Galatian churches had set aside the rule of God's Word and the gospel that justifies, and in its place they put circumcision, and they have no peace. They will have no peace in their experience until they do what? Return to the rule of God, the Word of God, and do what? Walk with God. What robs us of our peace in our experience is not that God erased your name out of the book of heaven or that He's forsaken you, is that you have forsaken God. That's what robs us of our peace. So the second reason I say the angel is not saying, Gideon, you've got it all wrong. You're really a, a kind of a strong guy. It just doesn't appear that way. He looked upon him and there was regard to Gideon. There is concern for Gideon and there's care towards Gideon. In response to Gideon thinking, he doesn't care, he's forsaken us, where are the powerful works, and why has this befallen us? What Gideon needs to do is return to God. What Israel needs to do is to get back with God. And what happens? Jehovah Shalom is experienced once again. No matter what the circumstances, whether they be good or whether they be bad. Because our peace is in Jehovah. Our strength is from Him. Now here's the third reason. I'm suggesting that the, the angel has, has no regard with Gideon's strength. He's not saying, just have confidence in yourself. It's the near demonstrative. Go in this, your might. Now a demonstrative shows where an object is in relation to the speaker. Is it far? That, those, or is it near? This, these. Where is the angel pointing? I'm not suggesting that he's literally pointing to something with his finger, but his words in the near demonstrative are pointing to something, and it's not Gideon, right? Now the object is might, valor, strength. The speaker is the angel, What's the relationship to the might and the angel? It's in these words. Have not I sent thee? Such a simple statement. Packed with power. The emphasis or the answer to the rhetorical question is not, Yes, yes, I I know you sent me. The emphasis is on the personal pronoun, I. Have sent thee. Mm-hmm. Now let me illustrate that. Let's suppose your husband, wives, just had a bad day and he'd forgotten that he had invited a co worker home that evening for dinner and it's 4 p.m. and he didn't tell you. So he texts you and says, Forgot to tell you this, uh, a co worker and his family is coming over for dinner and I forgot to tell you. Two hours until time to eat. At that moment, You have no rest. You have no peace. In fact, you're anxious, fearful, and probably a little bit hot. (laughs) A little bit angry. But then he texts again and says, Not to worry. All is well. I know their favorite recipe, and I've got the recipe in my hand. I have gotten all the ingredients necessary to make the meal. 
It only takes one hour to make, and I will be home to help you, and all the children will sweep through the house and make it perfect. Now, aside from the fact you still need to have a conversation with your husband, I get that. That is terribly wrong. Men, if you operate that way, you need to repent. But this is just an illustration, so don't get any kind of marching words from this. Now, that's wrong. But what's the point? Your rest is happening because everything's supplied. You have enough ingredients. You've got the recipe. You have enough time. And you've got the help. Contained in this statement of Jehovah Shalom is everything necessary to the fulfillment of the command. The angel is communicating Shalom to Gideon and saying, I the Lord, I Jehovah, I the self-existing one, the resourceful one, the sufficient one, the gracious one, the ruling one, the all-powerful one, have not I sent you? You have everything. Everything you need to complete the task. Rest in my strength and now go. Which brings us to our last point. The obedience that follows peace in Jehovah. See, when Gideon experiences this, when he recognizes the strength he needs is found in the command that God has given him, he's now ready to obey. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, regarding having all things that you need and peace connected with it. He would say, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through what? The knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So picture grace and peace coming like a waterfall or, or the ocean's waves to you. How is it coming? Through knowing God or Jehovah Shalom. And then he says this, According as His divine power hath given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that called you to virtue and glory. Now in both verses, the means of grace and peace, and the means of having everything you need, the ingredients, the recipe, the time, and the help, is through knowing Jehovah Shalom. Everything. See, that inner sense of well-being and rest and peace, that contentment, is in knowing the God of grace. Knowing that you don't have to travel anywhere, you don't have to call anybody, you don't have to go to another source. But through the knowledge of Christ, you have everything, everything. You know that's what all things mean, right? You have everything you need for life with God and for godliness. So what does Peter say? Get to work. Go make the meal. And whistle while you work. Go put it together in peace. Because God is supplying everything you need. Everything. Does that give you peace? Now remember, this peace has nothing to do with what's happening outside of you. That changes every day. This is an inner peace that we have in God, and we're, we're being strengthened through the, the care of God, the concern of God, the supply of God, and the Word of God, that everything the Word tells us to do, the great I Am of the Bible, is supplying everything that His grace demands. That's just a wonderful thought. Right?
William Mitchell in the 1800s. I've quoted this multiple times, so if you've forgotten, here it is. He said, I've learned in my life that whatever the demands of grace, whatever God graciously demands, that the grace of God comes along beside it and then supplies whatever I need. He is the source of our rest and peace. So now, what does Gideon do? God speaks peace to him. He experiences that peace through the conversation of this angel and the offering up of the burnt offering. And then in verse 25, after he builds the altar and calls it Jehovah Shalom, verse 25, it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, and throw down the altar of Baal and that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. And build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place, in the arrangement. And take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. Then Gideon took men of his servants and did as the Lord said unto him. From presence to strength to obedience. Where? In Jehovah Shalom. Even with 300 men, Gideon had everything he needed. Not in 300 men. We get that, right? He doesn't have enough. There's not enough men. There's not enough arms. There's not enough supplies. Yes, there is. Because it's found in Jehovah alone. Jehovah alone. So now let's look at the obedience that follows the strength that the angel communicated to him in the word, Peace be unto you. Be not afraid, thou shalt not die. So I'm, I'm going to look at three things under this last heading of ob- obedience that comes from peace. The dwelling of God and the strength of God. And it's going to be three W's. The first thing is we worship, we war, and we work. This is all involved in obedience. There's worship, build an altar, tear down the altar of Baal. There's war. Now... Th- Their war was a little different, right? There's going to be some physical war. Your warfare is spiritual. We've got to tear down the altars. Tear down the altars to Baal and Ashtaroth. And then Gideon is going to go do exactly what God said. He's going to get to work, as we mentioned. Get to work. So let's look at those. First, worship. The first thing God says for him to do when he speaks peace, he says, I want you now to worship. And that means build an altar, offer a burnt sacrifice. That's an act of worship in the Old Testament. That's what that means. So Gideon now is going to go in the might and the strength of the Lord, and he's going to worship. Now what is worship? And what's the relationship of peace and worship? Right? Now remember Matthew 15, 8, 8 uh, the Lord says to the Pharisees who worshipped vainly, He would say, well saith Isaiah concerning you, with your lips you honor me, with your mouth you draw near me, but your heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching for commandments the doctrines of men. So vain worship in that context is when the heart is away from God, that inner experience is far from God, but it's near something else. And the context shows us that it was the love of money, if you read the context. It was the love of money, Matthew 15. It was also the love of praise and the love of men. We find that in the Gospels, right? So vain worship is the inner experience of the heart that treasures something other than God. 
The Bible calls that idolatry. Judges chapter 2, they feared the gods of the Amorites and they served them. They were serving the wrong gods. So their inner experience of peace and joy was in the gods Baal and the gods Ashtaroth. Note the word grove is translated Asherah, which we get the word Ashtaroth. The grove was the companion to Baal. So there was an altar and a grove. It was a single pole or a single tree to the goddess of Ashtaroth. And you know what she symbolized? Yes, you guessed it. Happiness. Happiness. So worship is the inner experience of the heart that either treasures God because it's near God, God's dwelling, God's strengthening, or it's treasuring something else. How does peace relate to that? Because the inner experience of well-being and contentment is found when your greatest treasure is secure. It's safe. It's not being threatened. Right? So think about that. Your greatest times of peace are when your greatest treasure is secure, safe, not threatened. Your greatest times of anxiety and fear is when what you treasure the most is now at risk. It's threatened. It's not safe. It's not safe. Now let's go back to the illustration of building a house or owning a new house. And in that house is shalom. Every room in the house has exactly what you need. There's no shopping needed. No no things to buy. Every single square inch is perfect. It's shalom. Except for one thing. The builder forgot to put locks on the doors. There are no locks on the doors. Which means what? All your treasures are now at risk. The people in the house, the objects in the house, you can't rest. In fact, you're worried and anxious until locks are installed on those doors. Do you see the connection? So worship involves joy in the experience of treasuring God. And peace involves a rest and contentment over that treasure. Whether it's God or whether it's something else. And if it's something else, we're not going to have any peace, are we? Our peace will go up and then it will go down. Because we're trying, like Gideon, to attach our rest to something other than God. Maybe good circumstances, maybe good treasure, maybe good experiences, maybe a good job, maybe good money, maybe good retirement, maybe good benefits. And even at times we know We can treasure and make things too important and attach our peace to things that are important and are, in fact, a treasure. So the key to this worship is not saying nothing is a treasure. It's saying God is greatest treasure. He's greatest. Let's look at a couple of places here. Look at Isaiah chapter 57. If we fast forward in Israel's history, we learn that they never did overcome these idols and they never experienced peace. Years and years later, we find this in Isaiah 57, where the Lord speaks in chapter 
57 verse 17. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth. Now what's the opposite of covetousness? Peace. Contentment. Rest. For the iniquity of his covetousness I was wroth. And smote him. I hid me. What's God doing in Judges? He's hiding himself. He's not pleased. Why not? For the iniquity of their covetousness. That began at the Exodus and continued through the Old Testament. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on frowardly in the way of his heart. Verse 18, I have seen his ways and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. The word restore is the word shalom. Verse 19, I create the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now, how is God going to restore shalom? What is God going to overcome in order to create the fruit of the lips, which is a metaphor for thanksgiving, Hebrews 13. Let us by Him therefore offer The sacrifice of praise continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to His name. Thanksgiving is an act of worship. Do you know what you're saying to God when you give thanks? Continually, you are content. Because nothing's missing. If you thank God continually, you're saying to God, you are so supremely supplying, I'm never ever without anything I need. Because that's another idol we serve, isn't it? The God of need. We deem something to be a need, and then we're anxious and fearful and worried until we grasp it. And then we grasp it, we're still anxious and uh, fearful and worried because it may be gone. So we have to control it. We have to hang on to it. We have to do whatever we can because it's the source of our peace. So what does God do to overcome and heal and restore peace? He overcomes covetousness. I want you to picture covetousness like a bottomless pit that you could never rest in. And you just keep feeding the pit. And what happens? It never fills up. It never is satisfied. It's never content. Because there's never enough you can put in the pit to fill it up. Does that describe you this morning? Are you always empty? Always searching? Always looking? Never at peace? It could be that you're trying to fill a bottomless pit. And it'll never fill up. And you'll just find yourself filling and filling and filling. And it's never going to give you what you're after. Because we're trying to find peace in something external, something horizontal. Now God calls this covetousness idolatry in verse 5. Inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree. Inflaming means passions. You're trying to satisfy your passions with idolatry. Like Baal and Ashtaroth. You're trying to find happiness where it does not exist. Therefore, you have no shalom. You're always anxious and worried. Like the wicked, they can never rest. Why? Why? Because they're feeding a bottomless pit. 
And when it starts to fill a little bit, something takes it away. So God overcomes our covetousness and brings peace through the blood of His cross. Paul quotes this in Ephesians 2. Peace to them that are near, Jewish people, people of God out of the Jews. Peace to those that are far, Gentiles, people out of the nations. God says He will heal their covetousness through the cross. And what does He do decisively to heal it? Verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell, I dwell. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God comes and dwells to overcome your covetousness, which means he's far superior than a bottomless pit. And when he dwells, what happens? We get filled again and again and again. Because Worshiping God means we're attaching our peace and rest in the treasure that God is, in His presence, and then peace then becomes a kind of guardian to joy, right? Because you're having joy when everything's going good, but when things come in bad, peace comes in and reminds you, that's not where my joy is, that's not where my rest is, it's in Jehovah, and He hasn't changed. Therefore, I can still have peace even when circumstances come and go. Because the inner experience of the heart that worships is the heart that is near God. Nearer, my God, to thee. Right? So, worship is the first thing that the Lord demands of Gideon, which means God is working for his peace. Isn't that astounding? So why does God tell us we got to worship? He is after your peace in Him. So He says, worship me. Dwell with me. And through that dwelling, now we go to war. Against what? Covetousness. It has not fully been whipped, has it? It's been dealt a fatal blow. Now... What does Gideon need to do? He's got to tear down idols. See, worship is not just building and erecting an idol to God, or an altar rather. He's got to start tearing down the idols that rob him of his peace. So what do we find here? He said, first, throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. Now, notice where Gideon has to start in his own household. Isn't that something? Yeah, this culture is so idolatrous and so ungodly. And they treasure everything but God. Now, Gideon, I want you to go to your house and start tearing down the, the idols. See? God says, I want you to go into your heart and start tearing down the idols that rival the supremacy of God and the very thing that robs you of your peace, right? He had to start at home. What idols have you erected in your home and in your heart that you turn to again and again and again for your source of peace? It can be your marriage. It can be your children. It can be your job. All things important Sometimes we, we raise them to the level of importance that they should not occupy. 
And that's not good for us and it's not good for them, is it? So you've got to tear down the altars in your own house, which means spiritual warfare. Now, how would you identify the all idols of your heart? Well, in relation to this piece, whatever gives you anxiety. Right? Whatever it is that gives you anxiety is likely the idol you need to address. Philippians chapter 4. What does Paul say there? Be careful for nothing. I'm in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 6. Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds. Right? All right, why are, why are they anxious? Something has invaded their life that's given rise to fear and anxiety. That something is a treasure. If it's not a treasure, you're not afraid. Or if that treasure is secure, then you're at rest. Right? The peace of God in this text will garrison your heart and mind. The word there is a military garrison. It means it keeps the invaders out of the heart, and if they make it in, it drives them out. Now, we know Russia invaded Ukraine, and the Russian military was not strong enough to keep the invaders out. But I tell you, the peace of God is, but it's a war, see? The battle for peace is not a battle to say, well, I hope everything's better tomorrow. It may not be. The battle for peace is to battle the idols of the heart. It's to battle those things that we have raised to the level of importance and have assigned to them a value that says, if I don't have you, if I don't secure you, I can have no peace. And that's why the church at Philippi is starting to to experience anxiety. We don't know what the occasion is. We know there are two sisters that can't get along. And my guess is, Things were getting out of their control. And the peace that they wanted was peace that they secured for themselves. And they're wrestling with one another. And the church is kind of dividing because they're treasuring something they've attached themselves to that they're trying to control. That's destroying the peace of the church. There's no peace there. So Paul speaks into this context and says, Don't be anxious. We need the peace of God to keep the invader of anxiety out. So when I have anxiety and worry and fear, the first thing I do is not to call the doctor, it's to ask myself, why am I so afraid? Your answer will most likely reveal what you're trying to get your inner sense of peace from. That's where you're trying to get it. And it's threatened. And you can have no peace. Really? The God of peace is with us and we can have no peace? Now that's what Paul is speaking to. All right? How does this peace of God come? We've got to fight anxiety. Right? We've got to war against anxiety. We've got to locate the idols of the heart. We've got to ask, what is the real issue here that's producing this? And I think God will reveal to you that's 
the idol. And then it needs to be torn down. Now be careful. If the idol is a person, you, you can't tear the person down. You've got to tear down the affection that you have that you've raised above the supremacy of God. See, that, that person, that thing, it may be right to have affection for it. It's a good thing. But it's too high. Now it's become an idol. And that's why you're so anxious, so worried, you can't sleep. And so God says, we need to tear that idol down. We need to put it in its right place and exalt God to His place. You remember David in Psalm 4. There was a time when he had no good circumstances. Things were in chaos. And his own son was trying to kill him because he wanted to be king. And the only way you become a king is if your father's not dead, you, you, you hasten his death. You, you kill him yourself. David leaves the city. He leaves with a band of people. On one sense, he has no peace. But here are his words. You remember? I will lay me down in peace and sleep. Really? For thou, Lord, only maketh me to dwell in safety. David has an inner sense of well-being and rest when his son is trying to kill him. Why? Because the son that he loves, the son that's given him grief, has not been raised to a level of God or deity. Yes, he's grieved. Yes, he's weeping. Yes, he has peace. And yes, he goes to sleep. So how can we have this peace? Well, Paul says, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. In everything. Don't miss those uh, three words. In everything, pray. In everything, supplicate. In everything, give thanks. Now we're back to worship. We're warring against the idols that are producing anxiety. We're warring against the temptation to say, I need that. I've got to have that. Which then produces an anxiety until I get what I think I need. Right? That war begins with prayer and supplication and giving thanks. Giving thanks. In everything give thanks, Paul said, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. He said, giving thanks always for all things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Father. So once again, when we're worshiping in everything, we're thanking God, we're reminding ourselves we have everything we need. And that God is greatest treasure. The word or the root word for care is not just anxiety, it means to be drawn in different directions. See, idolatry draws us in different directions. See, Prayer and supplication and giving of thanks is going to draw us back in one direction. God. That's what it does. I'm going to remind myself in everything. Everything is going just as planned. God is over all things for His glory. He's over all things for your good. He's over all things for your sanctification. He's over all things on behalf of the church. He's over all things in your relationships. He's over every detail. Nothing will invade your life. Not a single thing without the will of God. (sighs) Rest. Now again... Nothing has changed in circumstances after these people pray. Because the peace of God passes all understanding. That means it's inexplicable. I don't know why you have peace, brother. I can't see it because everything's going wrong in your life. Right? 
If we could explain it in human terms, we could say, well, I see why you're at peace, man. New car, new house, just got married, good retirement, children are doing well. I get it, but this is inexplicable. I don't get it because it's from God, it's not from the world, and it's not in your circumstances. So the prayer and supplication doesn't change circumstances, it changes our direction. So we identify the idol. We're going to war with the idol because I'm anxious and there's a reason why. That didn't happen in a vacuum. And then secondly now, I'm taking it to God. I'm bringing the heart and mind back to God. Prayer, supplication, and I'm giving Him thanks. Yes, in everything. Yes, in everything. Because He's at work in everything. And I'm reattaching my peace to God. Secondly, you've got to think right. Now he says, whatsoever things are true, lovely, honest of a good report, think on these things. Now you go to war with your thoughts. Stop thinking things that are not true. Are you like that? You know, when somebody tells you a dream they had, and they say, in this dream, you know, you died, or you got maimed, or or something happened, you say, don't say that. Well, why not? Well, because it might happen. And now you're worried over somebody's dream that they had. Right? Are you like that? I confess I am. Don't say that. It might happen. No, that's not true. It's not true. Your dreams are not true. I mean, you can tell them. It's fascinating. It's just not true. You say, what if it is true? Then give thanks in everything. Because if it is true, you know why it's true? Because the God of truth willed it. The God that regards you, cares for you, is concerned for you, loved you, and loves you. The God who is your peace, you can be at peace and rest if it happens. But it's not true. And the last word of a good report means that which is auspicious. That's not a word I use. It means that which is concerning future success. So you should start thinking about your success in the future. That's dangerous, isn't it? I could come up with all kinds of things about future success. But where is your future success? Where can you bank yourself? Where can you put your hope and rest in and sleep at night and and, and lay down on that pillow and say, surely this is my success. It's whatever God has promised you. There's your success. Now that's just two things to think on and then you need to study the words and see what else God has you to think about. So identify the idols, go to war, give thanks, pray and supplicate. Peace of God comes in that passes understanding and now you've got to battle your thoughts because that's where anxiety starts and reveals what we treasure also, doesn't it? What we're trying to find rest in. And then what does he say? Get to work. Get to work. And I'll read this. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 9, those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. The peace of God now comes and starts giving you peace. And then when you go out in peace and get to work, do what Paul said, now the God of peace is with you. You're assured that God is with you. Jehovah Shalom. The God of peace. So we go to war spiritually because we have to identify the altars of our own household. The idols. 
We erect idols to God, or altars rather, that is, we return to God's Word as that which is overall and supreme, and then we start to tear down the idols that rob us of our peace. And the one sure way Gideon could determine that, we can too, is what is making him so afraid and so anxious, and what makes us so anxious. And then lastly, and this is the last thing, now Gideon goes to work. And this is what it says. Then Gideon took men, ten men of his servants, verse 27, Judges 6, and did as the Lord had said unto him, and so it was, because he feared his father's household. And the men of the city, that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. Now, now he's anxious all over again. So he's filled with fear. He's at the wine press, threshing the, 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 the wheat. God speaks peace, and now he's afraid of his father's household. But it's not that kind of fear. Now note what he says. He feared that he could not do it by day. He was afraid that if he started building an altar and tearing down the altar of Baal in the middle of the daylight, he would be stopped from obeying God. No, beloved, he fears God now. He's so deeply concerned about the priority of obedience that he wants to get the task done, so he does it at night. Now, if he's afraid of death, the next day they try to kill him. That's not his fear. He has such a dread of disobeying God. And he has such a high view of God that he's going to do whatever it takes lawfully to be obedient to Christ. Or to Jehovah. Now I want to ask you, Is your peace that stable that you're ready to obey no matter what? If Gideon called for a worship service at 2 a.m. because they couldn't do it in the day, would you all be there? Let me make it more simple. When God demands that you worship Him at 10.30 every Sunday, what's the priority of that? Is it the... Is it just that you don't have anything more important to do? And if you get a call Sunday morning or Saturday afternoon, and somebody says, hey, we're going here Sunday morning, you want to go? You better believe it. See, when Jehovah's your peace, and He's dwelling, and you're dwelling with Him, and He's strengthening, and you're obeying, then the first priority of your life is obedience to Jehovah. It doesn't matter what gets in the way and how important it is because Jehovah is more important. And so Gideon recovers. Gideon has strength. Gideon now is obedient. Why? Not because Gideon is a mighty man. Because his Savior is a mighty man of valor who's Jesus Christ, your Lord. May God be the source of your peace. May God dwell with you and give you peace. May God be the strength that is in you, His peace. And may through that peace, God bless us to be obedient, no matter what the day, no matter what the circumstances, as Gideon was. Let's pray. Father,